probably our generation was the first where in middle school and high school you had people who were open about their sexuality or about having a different religion or no religion at all. They live in a very different world with a lot of opinions and a lot of tolerance for every opinion. I find them to be very, very informed. I mean, they have a mechanism, the internet, by which they can get any piece of information they want, but it, it, it comes in such small slices. The millennials kind of miss out on seeing the big picture. One of the positives is that individuals have the opportunity to connect over long geographical distances. But I think one of the negatives is the communication isn't as good. In fact, a lot of time, a text can be taken the wrong way. Even if you're well-meaning by your stance and saying, hey, this is just what I believe personally, then you have people on the other side, well, I don't agree with that, so unfriend. They're on their phones a lot, and they barely talk to their family, so they're not used to like talking to new people. And it also changed how we communicate with our parents and how I can have this whole other life electronically that my parents don't know about. So as most of us know, we're in a series here at our church looking at the five major generations that exist in culture today and, and gladly even exist here in Scottsdale Bible in our various worship communities. And you might have noticed one thing that I've been consistently doing in this series, and this is unusual for me, is that I have avoided making jokes about or making fun of any one particular generation. And the reason that I say that's unusual for me is that part of my theology of life is that we need to laugh at each other. And so I laugh at myself all the time. I, I laugh at my family and I laugh at you all the time. And, and it's part of how we, I think, get through life with a lot of faith and even humor. But I, I began this series saying, you know, it, it's really tricky with generations because some generations just don't like being made fun of. And, and I get that. And so I decided at the beginning of this series that I would not unduly single out any one generation, mainly because the goal of this series is to foster unity and honor and blessing, and, and I really didn't want to alienate uh, anybody. And today we get to the millennials, uh, those who were born between roughly 1982, or some go back as far as 1980 to 2000. And, and I got to tell you, over the last few weeks in preparation for the millennials, uh, many of you have sent me videos and articles and pictures all poking fun at millennials. And I got to tell you, most of them were really funny. They really were. And, and even my adult millennial children, I have three millennials uh, in my, in my uh, in children, and my girls looked at those and said, Dad, that's really funny. And, and, and so, you know, I, I know they are funny, but I'm not going to break stride today and poke fun at the millennial generation. I'm really not, mainly because I think they've gotten enough heat from culture today and, and from culture at large, and I don't really think they need it from a pastor or a church, uh, at least at this time. So what we're going to do today is what we've been doing in this entire series. We're going to look at a few generational characteristics that are distinctive to millennials, and then we're going to ask what God might say to this generation. And I know some of you are thinking, you're thinking, well, without humor, this is going to be a boring message. We are going to have some humor. I'm just not going to poke fun at the millennials. Is that fair? And, and, and so and I'll share with you later, you'll see why, that, that it really doesn't work when you do that anyway. So let's show some honor and some blessing to our millennials here and our other campuses and venues. If you were born between, let's say, 1980 or 1982 and 2000, stand right now. If you're a millennial, I want you to stand. Oh, God bless you guys. And it's good to have you here. Some old guy stood over here, but I, we'll, we'll chat afterward. All right, good. <laughs> All right. Hey, if you can't be disingenuous in church, where can you be disingenuous, right? So let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for uh, your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you. God, that you invented this thing called generations, God, in which we are born, made in your image, we grow and mature, and then as we start to have our own kids, a new generation is born. So God, as we continue in this series now, taking a look at this specific generation uh, in our world, the millennials, and then asking the question, God, what might you say to them? Give us wisdom. 
give us insight. May you speak to each one of us individually and then collectively, Lord, as a whole, as a community, speak to us. And we'll give you great praise for what you say in Jesus' name. And I hope we can all say together, amen. So the obvious question is, who are the millennials, right? I, I mean, precisely and specifically, we hear so much about them, who are they? And let's start real simple. As I said earlier, they are those who were born roughly between 1980 and 2000. They are those who came of age during the turn of the millennium. That's why we call them the millennials. And we know that there are more than 80 million millennials. They actually top out over the baby boom generation. There are a lot of them. And as a result of this, they make up about one-third of the current American workforce. And we know that they have been the recipients of more attention and study than I would estimate all the other four generations alive today combined. They are constantly in the news. They are the topic of immense interest and, quite frankly, a lot of criticism. Everybody from marketplace to politics, business, education, churches, they all write about and talk about the millennials. I mean, even this week with the continued demonstrations against the election results, millennials in the news are, are being painted as culturally out there, reactionary children that, that, that are, are waiting to grow up. I mean, it's amazing the interest and even the criticism that many millennials get. And as a result of this, it's been hard for a lot of millennials to really gain an identity as a generation and as a culture. Pew Research did an exhaustive study of all the generations in 2015 and wrote it up. And one of the things they pointed out about millennials is that when they polled uh, people between the ages of 18 and 34, only 40% of them would accept or identify with the millennial label. I mean, it's very difficult for millennials to, to grasp the identity of who they are, and, and, and it's helpful for us to be focusing on them today. And one of the things that I want to make really clear before we dive into some of the generational characteristics of millennials, and this is very, very important given the criticism that they get today, is that we all need to understand that every generation in their early 20s is seen by the older generations as out there and a bit culturally wacko. They are. I mean, every single generation in the history of the known world has looked at the generations under them, especially when they're in their 20s, and says, boy, are those people out there. Uh, look, look at this quote if you don't believe me. This is what one guy says. I kind of like this. He says, what is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. They ignore the law. They riot in the streets, inflamed with wild notions. Their morals are decaying. What is to become of them? You know who said this? Plato in the fourth century BC. Yeah, I, I had the same reaction you guys did. I mean, that's a 2,500 year old quote. And every single generation since then has gotten the same criticism from those that are older. I mean, it just happens all the time. If you don't believe me, let me ask you, uh, what were the early boomers doing when they were coming of age in the late 1960s? Does anybody remember? Yeah, they were driving across America, jobless in VW buses, doing hardcore drugs, complete with free and lots of open sex, eventually ending up at this thing called Woodstock. And let me ask you, what do you think that their parents, most of them from the greatest generation, were thinking of them during that time? They were thinking, my kids have gone off the deep end, and quite frankly, they had. They're thinking these kids have no idea what they're doing, and quite frankly, they didn't. There's a Subaru commercial that came out a few years ago, about 2014, and I just, I, I just laughed when I saw it. It, it showed a, 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 a three-generation family in a Subaru, and it was a, a grandma and then the two kids that are married, and then I think it was one or two grandkids, and they're driving on this back country road. I don't know if you saw it. And at one point, they stop, and Grandma says, that's the tree that I met Grandpa under. And they all go over and hug the tree, and, and then she goes, or maybe it was that tree. And, 
And then the commercial ends by showing the sign Woodstock, you know, and then Subaru. Yeah, and I'm sitting there going, leave it to Subaru to romanticize Woodstock. I mean, do we all understand Woodstock was a rave party back then? It was the equivalent of the Burning Man today, if you know what that is. I mean, it was a decadent thing in which drugs and free sex was just running rampant. It was, it was not a good thing. And leave it to Subaru to try to romanticize that, saying Grandma met Grandpa at Woodstock. I'm glad the kids didn't have any more details in that, aren't you? And you see, here's my point in all of this, as I talk about even the, the boomer generation, is that we need to be careful in our assessment and judgment of any young, burgeoning generation, because as you're going to see in a second here, as I talk again about boomers, the boomers eventually grew up. I mean, they didn't continue to do a lot of psychedelic drugs and open sex. I mean, that lasted a few years, and then many of them got jobs and got married and had kids and eventually wound up back in church. And so we've got to be careful in our judgment of any one generation when they're in their 20s because the cement is still wet, and it hasn't hardened yet. And we don't know exactly how they're going to turn out. So the trick is to fairly and evenly identify some of the distinctives, now watch this, that they are wrestling with and that might become a part of the cultural fabric of the future and help guide them and at the very least pray for them as they wrestle with some of those issues. And so with this said, here are three rather clear generational characteristics of millennials. And though there's a lot of different generational characteristics of millennials, I'm just going to wet your whistle with three of them today. But these are three that almost all demographers, almost all culture watchers agree with. And I'm going to give you all three up front, and they are that millennials are tolerant, they are confident, and they are rather non-traditional, at least for now. They are tolerant, they are confident, and we'll define this in a minute. They're, they're existing in a world in which they're pushing back on a lot of the traditions that maybe we were raised with. So first, notice with me that millennials, and everybody seems to know them this way, are tolerant. And there's right reasons that they are so, more so than any other generation alive today. Millennials are inclusive, uh, they are diverse, and they are tolerant. Here's why. Baby boomers, both then and now, are 72% white. We know that for a fact. 72% of baby boomers are white. Generation X, both now and then, are 61% white. But did you know that millennials in America are 56% white? which means that 44% of American millennials are black, Hispanic, uh, American Indian, Asian, Middle Eastern, and more. And so don't miss this. Millennials, more so than any other generation, pretty much in the history of America, have been raised with more of a level of increasing racial diversity, again, than, than any other generation. I kind of had fun with this this week as I was ruminating on this. I thought to myself, you know, what, what would a um, person from the greatest generation identify with if you were to use the word diversity? I, I think that a person from the greatest generation would say, yeah, I'm diverse because I know some Irish people, right? I mean, they would. They, they would say, Jimmy O'Malley, he was a great guy, you know, and, and, and they, they would identify because back in the 1920s, you had all these Western Europeans coming uh, to America, and so you had the Italians and the Irish and the Scottish and the British and the Germans and the French and all that, and, and so that was their idea of diversity, was a bunch of different Western white people getting together in America. And then baby boomers would identify themselves as diverse by saying, I know some black people. So baby boomers who went through the racial riots of the 60s and things like that, when they tried to get more inclusive and tolerant, would start to bridge the gap racially between black and white. But here's what a millennial says when he or she talks about diversity. They say, I got black friends, Asian friends, Muslim friends, and gay friends. You see, that's the world that millennials have grown up in. In fact, if you really do sit down and talk with a millennial, many of them don't even distinguish between groups. They see us all as one. You see, they've grown up in a world and culture that was more diverse than anything we've seen in America. 
Unless some of you think, well, I'm not sure I like that. Here's what the U.S. Census Bureau has predicted, and I love this. I love where our country is going in diversity because it's going to be more like heaven. The U.S. Census Bureau predicts that whites will become what is called a majority minority by the year 2043. The die is cast. John Piper in his book Bloodlines says it's actually going to come, come quicker than this. Our culture is becoming very multicultural, very diverse. And what you need to see is that millennials are the, really the first generation that has been raised in the midst of all of this. And so inclusion and tolerance is key to their understanding of the world. And though some of you, I know how you think right now, you're thinking, well, they're too tolerant or they're blindly tolerant or what have you. That might be so, and we'll save that for another discussion. But at the very least, for our purposes today, please honor and recognize that millennials are a generation of generous tolerance, and in many ways, this is a good and honoring characteristic that God has blessed them with. And as you're chewing on that, let's notice a second key generational trait that millennials have, and that is that they are confident. <laughs> Again, more so than probably any other generation that we are talking about in this series, they are confident. And though one could argue that this goes back to that infamous participation award that they were given when their soccer team came in last, <laughs> and, and it very well could be, what you need to understand about millennials is that they really were, and again, this is not to pick on them, this is true, guys. They were a generation that we have empirically been able to show were doted upon, built up, encouraged, given a level of confidence by their parents. They didn't choose it. Their parents did it. Uh, more so, again, than, than any other generation we're looking at in this series. In other words, their parents really made their, their millennial kids the apple of their eyes and in many ways gave them a level of confidence about this world and their role in it that nobody else in other generations got. Uh, Tom Schrader, who's a buddy of mine, he's preached here, he, he actually preached in one of the messages in this series. Uh, we, he and I were talking about this generation series and he was telling me that when he was growing up in Iowa, he's right between the greatest generation and the early boomers, uh, that he grew up in Iowa and when his baseball team was playing another baseball team from the town over, call it, you know, anywhere between five and eight miles, he, he told me, true story, that, that, that if his team lost, his dad would make him walk home. I mean, that's the world he grew up in. And he can remember thinking that as he was walking across these, you know, dark Iowa back roads home as his team lost, he remembers thinking, I hope Dad remembers to keep the door unlocked when I get home tonight. I mean, that's the kind of world that some of us grew up in. Again, I mean, it's, some of you are aghast to that today, but that was kind of the rough culture that existed in post-World War II. They really weren't concerned about the feelings of their children. They were concerned that we just beat the Nazis. They were concerned that a half million people lost their lives. They were concerned that we have to rebuild our entire culture. And they didn't sit around concerned about whether everybody was happy or not. We discussed that in that generation. But the boomers, as we saw, changed all of that. And, and really, it's the boomers, if you want to blame anybody, it's the boomers that was the kind of the hinge generation. And they, they've raised their children, the millennials, uh, to, to, to really have a level of confidence unforeseen in, in the history of our understanding of generations. Uh, Rice University recently did a, a study and write-up on millennials. I, I kind of like this. This is right from Rice University's website. They say... Millennials have always been treated as special and important. This generation of children has been the most wanted. Every milestone was marked with celebrations and praise. It's been instilled in them that they are vital to the nation and to their parents' sense of purpose. That they feel that they are here to solve world problems that older generations failed to solve. They go on to say, millennials are motivated, goal-oriented, and confident in themselves and the future. They may brag about their generation's power and potential. They have high levels of optimism and they feel connected to their parents. They are assertive and believe they are right. In Canada, the millennial generation is called the sunshine generation. I didn't know that. 
And again, I know how some of you think. I've been hanging around church people for way too long. Some of you are thinking right now, well, you know what? They're too confident and they're too optimistic and they're arrogant and all of that. Well, again, that's for another discussion and that might be true. I, I, I get that. But again, I would ask you, whose fault is it? Them or their parents? And that's for another discussion. But I think nonetheless, they are a generation. And this is what we need to recognize. We have to deal with what is. That has been encouraged since toddlers that they are indeed special and play a special role in shaping the world and culture around them. And at the end of the day, I would argue that a modicum of confidence in this fallen and brutal world is not always a bad thing. I think there's some goodness in that trait that the millennials have been given. So you got tolerance, you got confidence. And then a third generational trait that millennials have that I mentioned earlier is this trait that we're going to call non-traditional. Now I need you to listen very closely because this one is subtle but so very important. Though every generation, as we have established, in their 20s gets a bit countercultural and non-traditional, and again, this has been going on since Plato's day, what we also need to understand is that every generation, at least up till now, tends to eventually abandon most, if not all, of their craziness <laughs> and their countercultural attitude and they eventually, if you will, start to adopt the values and the realities of their parents. It's how we hand off things generationally. But then we also notice that they tend to keep a few things in their bag. They tend to carry a few things uh, on from their craziness days that will have a profound impact on culture. And this is why things change, and this is why cultures morph, and all of that, because most kids in their 20s are trying to find their way, and they're, they're dealing with a lot of things that they're wrestling with. And again, they keep some of them, a few of them, uh, abandon the rest, and that's how generations progress. And I think, again, that the greatest example of this is the hippies from the 1960s, again, the early boomers. As I mentioned, they fairly quickly abandoned free sex and psychedelic drugs, and they got jobs, had kids, went back to church. But, but get this, they also did not abandon a level of self-absorption, which became the me generation of the 1970s. And they also didn't abandon their materialism that led to a lot of wealth creation in the 80s and as a result of these two generational traits that they kind of invented a level of self-absorption and then materialism we have now had to deal with higher rates of divorce than any other generation as well as a lot of debt because with wealth comes that risk of debt as we established in talking about the boomers that, that again was unforeseen at least in their parents generation. And so again, what, what I'm simply saying is, is that when it comes to any generation in their 20s being non-traditional, what you hope is that they eventually see some of the merits of the traditions that they have been given and, and that they eventually adopt those because even though they might not see it at the time, they are actually pretty good things. Because if they don't, it's going to radically change the culture as we know it. And it's what a lot of us fear when we look at the millennials. So what am I talking about with the millennials? Let me give you a, a couple of trends that we see right now in millennials that some of us have concerns about uh, in their non-traditional nature. Uh, the first trend, many of you would have guessed it because it's the most obvious that people write about, is the trend of marriage among millennials. Marriage. Uh, these stats are from NPR, National Public Radio, so not necessarily a conservative think tank, not necessarily anybody that has an agenda. These are, are just their study of millennials, and they did a, a really, really good long series on millennials just recently. And, and they cite in this article that I was reading that the average age uh, of a millennial right now is t for marriage is 27 for women and 29 for men. In other words, the average millennial, if you're a male, will get married at 29, a woman is 27. Uh, in 1960, the average age was 20 for women and 23 for men. So we all know this. Millennials are putting off marriage, getting married uh, much later in life. 
Add to that the fact that about one in 10 millennials will cohabitate instead of getting married. 9.2% of millennials will live together in lieu of ever getting married. And again, that might not seem a lot to some of you, but in Generation X, it was 5.8%, almost unheard of among baby boomers that they would ever think about not getting married ever. 10% of millennials will. 24% of now married millennials claim that, say that they bought a home with their now spouse before they got married. So one in four, not to put too much of a point on it, shacked up before they got married, er, married and lived together. And as a result of all of this, 25% of millennials predicted by demographers will never get married with where all of this is going. Now, now again, I'm not judging this, I'm really not. I am trying to be discerning. The reality is there's a non-traditional approach among millennials, this is just one example here, that has a lot of people concerned. I've had this discussion with my own kids, even arguments with one of them to be unnamed. I've, I've, had, I've had these kind of discussions on what, what God's view of marriage is and why it was invented and, and all of that. And, and, and then some of you are thinking, yeah, even the whole idea of same-sex marriage, 73% of millennials support same-sex marriage. In other words, I'm simply pointing out there's a non-traditional view of marriage that millennials are going through that if they continue on with, everybody, liberal and conservative, progressive and traditional, everybody agrees, is going to have profound ramifications on the fabric of American culture, at least as we know it. And again, we hope, and we'll talk about this in a second here, that millennials are giving a lot of thought to some of the choices that they're making here because these aren't just, hey, you're being crazy in your 20s. This is a, actually a long-term thing that ha will have effects on culture in general. And that's just one example. Uh, morality uh, would be another example. I mean, as we all know, kids in their 20s tend to go a little nuts. And so in a recent Pew Research uh, study, uh, they asked people if they would consider themselves, if they would accept the label of being a moral person. Kind of an interesting question. And, and so 64% of the greatest generation said, yes, I would accept that label. 51% uh, of boomers said I would accept that label. 27% of Gen Xers say I would accept that label. And only 17% of millennials would accept that label. And again, that's to be predicted, by the way. I think the older you get, the more settled you get in your ways and all of that. And, and so you don't mind being seen as moral, your grandpa for crying out loud. And, and, and parents, as they become parents, don't mind being seen that way. But again, when you're young and kind of wild and nuts, you know, you might not accept that label. But again, it's just indicative of what we hope changes over time, because if they continue with that, as boomers did in some ways, that's going to have a lot of ramifications on culture. And so you got this generation right before us that is tolerant and is confident and in many ways is wrestling with this non-traditional nature. And the question becomes, how do we help them? How do we respond to them? How do we bless them? What might God be saying to them? That's what I want to spend the remaining uh, 20 minutes or so we have left on. And, and let me just make a very, very serious and sobering comment first that I know some of you feel intuitively, but man, you've got to grab onto this today because culture's really messing up here when it comes to responding to millennials. What you don't want to do, and it's so tempting to do, but what you don't want to do with millennials is make fun of them or become reciprocally angry at them which is what you see a lot in the news. People are making fun of this generation, and then even with the riots this week, they're just getting reciprocally angry at them and saying, ah, they're a bunch of spoiled kids who ought to be spanked and taken out to the woodshed or something like that. And you sit there and go, honestly, you have to ask yourself, is that kind of rhetoric, is that kind of response going to work, yes or no? No. <laughs> no, it won't. The, the reality is, I'm telling you, it won't. Because the reality is what it will do is it will make you feel more justified. I get it. I mean, I, it makes you feel more justified. But at the end, the goal is not for you or I to feel justified. The goal is to try to connect with a generation and, and talk with them about intelligent and life-giving things. That's what we want to do. 
And so how do you do that with a millennial? I put in your outline before you here today that, 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 that what I call a preferred narrative for millennials. Now let's talk about that for a second, a preferred narrative for millennials. And you'll notice if you're looking at your outline that I put narrative in quotes because that's a really, really important term to millennials. Here's one of the key things you need to understand about millennials. They have grown up in a world in which they've been taught at our academic institutions and through culture at large that life is one big grand narrative. It's a story that is unfolding before us. You see, baby boomers were taught differently. We were taught that life is about worldview, that it's about propositions, that it's about statements. So I was talking with somebody before the service here today. You can look at a baby boomer in the eye and just tell them what it is and be really forthright and candid, and they can usually be okay with it. But you see, the problem with millennials is, not a problem, but what we need to understand about them is that they've been raised in a world in which narrative is a much more profound language for them than just simply stating propositions to them. And though some of you might not like that, here's what you need to understand. The Bible talks a lot to us in the form of narrative. Amen? I mean, Jesus rarely spoke propositions. He did speak some, but most of Jesus' teaching was in the form of parables, stories, and narratives. And so this idea of narrative and the idea that God has a story that's unfolding in the culture around us is actually a really good thing. And millennials have locked on to that in a good way. And so if you want to talk to millennials, the best way to do it is to speak the language of narrative. And to ask them, here's the critical question, what story do you think is unfolding in the history of the world and even in culture today? The academicians call it a meta-narrative or a grand narrative. What is the meta-narrative that your life is about? What's the story that's unfolding? Because you see, if you can get a millennial talking at that level, you can have a wonderful discussion with them about real spiritual, theological, and even very purposeful things in life. Because you see, the Bible gives us a grand narrative for life. Did you know that? It does. The Bible gives us at the very least three movements in history that are all relevant today, three movements of God's story as it unfolds in our lives and throughout history. And those three movements are, I'm just going to put them up here on the whiteboard, creation and what we're going to call fall, and then what we're going to call, because this is the word the Bible uses, redemption. And I'm telling you, if you can lock on to these three words here, Creation, fall, redemption as the three movements of God's story unfolding in this world. I'm telling you, this is our chance to talk reasonably with the millennial generation that is in our midst. Uh, let's understand what each of these mean. Uh, in creation, the Bible begins, many of you know this, with the very first verse, Genesis 1-1, saying this. In the beginning, say it with me, God created the heavens and the earth. Again, you don't want to get into a discussion here on evolution versus creationism or anything like that. You're simply noting, and this is very meaningful to millennials, that there is personality behind this universe. That there is beauty and profundity and purpose behind this universe. Because there is God, and they're so wide open to that. There is God who somehow in the midst of all of it has brought creation into being. And so the very beginning movement of God's story in this world is the creation of human life, Adam and Eve initially, and when he created humankind in his image, he called it what? Do you remember this? Very good. Very good. And again, this is meaningful for a millennial generation. But then you have to ask yourself, and by the way, any millennial who has a meta-narrative will be answering this question. You have to ask yourself, well, if this is the beginning of the wonderful story, then what went so wrong, right? I mean, how do you have all this crud going on in Bosnia and the Sudan and totalitarian countries like China and 4,000 people losing their lives by murder in Chicago this year alone? How do you have 
all of these problems, how, how's that a part of the story? And the Bible actually goes on in the very next chapter in Genesis to give the second movement of God's story unfolding, and it tells us exactly how there has become evil in this world. And, and again, we usually point to Genesis chapter 3, but have you ever looked at Genesis chapter 2? Look at what it says here, because this is, again, so revealing to God's story unfolding. It says, Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and, say this word with me, evil you shall not eat for in the day that you do eat from it you will surely die now let's understand what God is saying here in the second movement of the narrative what God is saying is that if and when Adam and Eve were to eat that forbidden fruit they would be taking evil into themselves so the idea behind the fall is not China's fallen, Bosnia's fallen, the Sudan has fallen, inner city Chicago has fallen, and that's why we have all these problems, though that is part of it. The real idea behind the fall, and this is so profound to me in God's story as it unfolds, is that we're all fallen. That all of us, in our own way, have eaten the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve's sin became imputed to all of us, and all of us then have a knowledge of good and evil, and all of us have the propensity, if not the reality, of evil inside of us. And though none of us like to really admit it, we go, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. No, you got to talk about that, because that's a key part of God's story unfolding in our lives. That you and I wake up every day and we battle, watch this, in ourselves, a part of ourselves that we know is real and we don't like. And this is huge to understand in God's story. In fact, if you don't understand this idea of fall, you'll never get to the third movement, the idea of redemption, which we'll talk about in just a second here. But it's critical to understand what's wrong with this world and how God has communicated to us in story form. That Adam and Eve were the first ones to bring this evil into their lives, and it's been going on ever since then. And again, this is where you can have such a wonderful discussion with your millennial kids and grandkids. Because you simply ask them in dialogue, without de with no defensiveness, you just say, well, if not this, as part of the story, the meta-narrative of our life, what do you think's wrong with this world? What do you think happened? And, and again, some people say, well, you know, it, it just here's what the really problem is, is that most people are basically good, but there's a few bad apples, and that's why things are so bad. You ever heard somebody say that? I hear people say that. Again, I love when people say, let me get this right. So what you're saying is, is that you know, 98, 99% of us are basically good people, but you got a few Hitlers and Mussolinis and those ISIS wackos and things like that, and it's because of that that the world is so bad. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Really? Really? You see, you see I love when people say that because the question then becomes, if that is true, then how in the world does the good not overcome the evil in this world. I, I mean, if all of us are basically good and there's just a few bad apples, then why can't we pluck those bad apples out and make this world a really good place? Why is there so many problems, even with all of our modernity? I, I don't think that's a, a right understanding of the narrative. So others will then say, well, no, okay, you're, you're right. There's really just a little bit of bad in all of us, and, and so there's a lot of bad in all of us, or a little bit of bad in all of us, but we're basically good, and if we can just promote the good and get rid of the bad, then things will be really good. I hear people say that. And again, I love it when they say that. Okay, good, good, that, that's good. Okay, let's talk about that. So what you're saying is, is, is that we are all, it's, it's a majority, so all of us are basically 60, 70, 80% good, but there is a part of us that's bad, and if the good can just overcome the bad in each of our lives, then culture and society will be really good. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Again, same question then. Well, then why are things still so messed up? I mean, if the scales are tipped so that most of us are born really good, and there's just some evil that we have to eradicate, then why doesn't that work? Why is the story unfolding with every generation dealing with, with profound social ills 
and profound personal problems that plague us all of our lives. There has to be a better understanding than that. So again, some will say, well, now I see the real problem is social engineering. We just haven't engineered society right. And again, I love it when they say that. Good, let's go with that one. That's a good, that could be a possible narrative. Uh, let's talk about that. So you got all these really good people that are, that are just dumb at, at, at making society. I mean, is that what we're saying? That we're, it, it, with all of our modernity, with all of our technology, all of that, I mean, the baby boomers tried that. We can make it better, stronger, faster. And it didn't work. Again, you have to, you have to wrestle with these issues. See, again, I, I'm not trying to say I'm right. I'm just saying I think that the Bible's narrative of life gives the best understanding. At least for me, it surely helps me understand that God is real, that he made me and he made this world and he made it good but boy, have we made a mess of it. We have made a mess of it, each one of us, because there's something in us that we all know is really ugly. And if the story ended there, boy, would that be a mess, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd be just like, oh my gosh, there'd be no hope. But the third movement of the story, of God's story, is redemption. The fact that God decided not to leave us in this spot and in Romans 5, if you ever want a good proof text for this idea of redemption, specifically verses 18 to 19, bounces off of this idea of the fall, bounces off of this idea of creation, and explains to us very clearly what God has done to, in this third movement of his narrative to bring us into a place of hope. And here is how it says it, Romans 5, 18 and 19. It says, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, talking about Genesis 2 and Adam, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, again Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous." Let me ask you a very simple but important question. Who is the positive one being talked about here? Does anybody know? Jesus. I've told you guys before, if you don't know the answer to a question, just say Jesus, and 99% of the time in church, that will be the right answer. It, it, it's Jesus. You see, Jesus, I love the poetry going on here. Again, talk about narrative. I love the poetry going on here. It's saying that, that you have one back here that... That, that started the ball rolling, that made all this mess in God's story. But 2,000 years ago in history, God decided to insert another one who would provide for us a happier ending to the story. And what is that happier ending? That that one came to die on a wooden cross for our sins as an atonement for our sins, bearing all of that fall upon himself so that we might be what? Forgiven, free, given a new lease on life. And then I love the words that Romans 5 uses. It says so that that one might be, even usher us into a level of righteousness in our lives. See, millennials are into justice and, 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 and personal righteousness and making a difference in this world. That's what all this redemption is about. It doesn't just secure for us eternity. It secures for us hope, even this side of heaven. Do you see how God's story unfolds? And the Bible says that to incorporate this idea of redemption in your life, that's why it's important that we come to and believe in and trust in Jesus Christ in our lives because he is the key to this third movement of God's story unfolding in our lives. And what I'm simply suggesting here, don't miss this, gang, is that as we have these three movements of God's grand and continuous narrative flowing in our lives, they can become a guide to how we see life and the world around us. And they can even become important, and this is very important for millennials. If you're a millennial or today, listen to me right now. They can become important as you navigate moral, spiritual, and relational choices around you. They really can. Because if you can start to see life as a narrative unfolding before you of God's amazing creation, purposeful, beautiful personality behind the core of this universe, and then to see the fall that helps you understand why things are so messed up, but it even points to you and your need for forgiveness, and then to see the redemption of God being offered to us in Jesus, and that's why he's so important in this story. These can actually become handles for how you and I even make decisions 
on an everyday basis. I, I got to tell you, in so many ways, I am, um, I, I am proud of a lot of the millennials I know. Uh, one of the reasons I'm kind of defensive about culture being hard on them is that um, there's a lot of millennials in our culture today, and especially here in our church, that I believe are more sober, uh, more serious, uh, quite frankly, more curious and inquisitive when it comes to the things of God than many, many baby boomers were at that age. Again, as I've kind of made light of, because I'm a baby boomer myself, baby boomers in the 70s were kind of picking up the pieces from Woodstock and becoming self-absorbed. I mean, that's what we were doing back in the 70s and early 80s. The millennials that get God's narrative, I'm here to tell you right now, are, are really, really impressive to me. You guys might not know this. We have about 40 pastors and directors here at our church, and uh, we're a large church, and we have a lot of people. But we have about 40 people that we hired, have hired to be the pastors and the ministry leaders in our church, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not when you consider that our average attendance will be between six and 7,000 every weekend, and we have about 10,000 families that call this home. What you might not have known is that in the last five or six years, we've been on a millennial hiring blitz partly because I'm terrified of our church getting older. No offense, I look around every Sunday and it's obvious to me and that we need to make sure that we are a church that gets younger as we go along. And as I looked at the list this week of the millennials that I see every week here on our staff at our church, I gotta tell you, they are a very impressive lot. When I look at what's going on in our venue across campus right now and I look at Rustin and Derek, I mean, again, I tease these guys a lot behind the scene, and I got my new rusting glasses and all of that stuff, and, and yet I'm very impressed with these two young men. When I look at Ryan Heath running our children's ministry, I'm really impressed. When I look at our student ministers, Kevin and, and Mike and, and, and Josh and them, I, I'm just very, very impressed with the ones working with our students and young adults. When I look at our worship guys like Carson and Matthew, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed. And when I even look at some of the young guys we've hired and young women, uh, Michelle and women's ministry and some of our, our worship arts people like Eve and Joshua and, and Allie, I'm just so impressed with what I see in these young millennials. Because I tell you, if they grab onto the narrative we're talking about today, there's no stopping them. Why? Because they're a confident lot. And, and they, they've been built up since they were kids. All they need, I'm telling you, all they need is to be push in the right direction, if you will, given the narrative that God has given them, and they're going to run with it. Final story, and then we're going to go to our elder fund offering. This is a true story that just made my day. About three weeks ago, I was preaching in Toronto, Canada, at Bayview Glen Church, which is Lucas Cooper's church. Uh, Lucas used to be on staff here. And Kim and I, because we have roots in Michigan, flew into Michigan and drove over, and then Sunday afternoon, we're driving back to see some friends and family. And uh, as we were heading back, we uh, hit the border crossing there at Port Huron. And, and this is, again, I, it might be too much you want to know about my marriage, but this is the little cat fights Kim and I have. We were, we were pulling up to the line, and Kim, who always thinks she can predict the best line, and she usually can, said to me, don't take that line, take this line. But that line was shorter, and so I didn't listen to her. I'm the leader of this family, and I, and I went into the, the, the shorter line. And, and that was a big mistake on my part because she marked where the car was compared to the other car next to it. And as that line moved faster, she reminded me the whole time, it was about a 20-minute line, that, that she was right. And at one point she said, look, there are five cars ahead of us. We could be up there right now. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so that, that's what we're doing in line. And, and I was feeling a bit of shame and a bit mad that I, I didn't listen to my wife there. And so I was getting mad at the toll guy, uh, or not toll guy, the, the, the border guy up there. And I, and I said to Kim, I mean, it really was a comical to watch. I said, Kim, you know what? We got Barney Fife up there at the booth. <laughs> I said, this guy's asking all these inane questions. I mean, this is, this is Canada. I mean, we're okay, you know, and, 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 I'm, and I'm going on and on. And then, I kid you not, I looked on the roof of the border thing there, and there's all this fancy equipment. I thought, I wonder if they're monitoring what I'm saying. <laughs> And I don't know if they do or not, but I got real quiet because I thought, oh, just leave it to me. The guy's going to look at me and go, Barney Fife, huh? You know, and <laughs> so we finally get up to the thing, and, and it, was, it, was this, it was a millennial. It was this young guy, and he looked like he was right out of an REI catalog. He really did. I, I mean, the wavy hair, kind of long, and the goatee. I mean, he looked like Troy 10 years ago, you know, and... and <laughs> 
and, and just, you know, I, it just it, the way he was dressed and the way he carried himself, real laid back, you know. But I could tell he was kind of Barney Fife because I handed him the passports and I said, we're American. And he didn't buy that. He looked at them and said, where have you been? And I said, we were in Toronto, Canada. What were you doing? I said, I'm a minister. I was preaching at a church. Now, usually when I say that, they just say, go right back through. He didn't. He looked at me and he said, what church were you at? And I said, Bayview Glen Church. And he said, what were you preaching on? <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, what was I preaching on? And Kim tells me that I always say too much that I get nervous. And I do. I was like, well, ah, uh, ee, ah, uh, you know. And, and I go, I was preaching on hope. And, and, and Kim bails me out. She yells across the car. She yells to the guy. She goes, hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to him who is unseen, which was the main point of my message. And I wanted to look at Kim and say, I say too much? I say too much? And as long as I live, I'll never forget what happens next because I'm sitting there all hot under the collar and Marsh was his name. you got to love that millennial name, Marsh. He looks at me. And he says, well, without him, we have no hope. Oh, my gosh. And I looked at Marsh, and I said, dude, you have made my day. I said, I never expected this at the border. I almost wanted to say it. I never expected it from you. But that would have been so judgmental. I was just so thrilled to hear that. And I drove away with a smile on my face. Reminded once again that you don't judge a book by its cover. You don't judge a generation too early in their 20s. Amen? We're here to honor and we're here to bless. We're here to understand. We're here to support. Yes, we're here to speak truth. Don't ever hear me saying that. Let's speak some narrative to the millennials around us. Let's have a dialogue with them and see where God and his great power will lead them. We have an elder fund offering that we're going to do here and in our venues and in our um, other campuses. As many of you know, this is a time, talk about a good millennial thing to do. It's a time where we take up a special offering only for those in need in our culture and in our church. And so I'm going to hand it off to the, uh, to the other campuses and venues as I pray here in a second. And here, we're going to have one last worship song and take up our elder fund offering. Why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, I indeed thank you for your word and for the grand narrative that you've been unfolding in what theologians call salvation history, God, for thousands of years, first shown in Israel and now, Lord, shown through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that as we focus on this idea of your story unfolding in our lives, that indeed, Lord, that would be meaningful to this younger generation that we focused on today. God, they have grown up in a world, as you know, of increasing complexity and difficulty that a lot of us didn't have when we were younger, and we're empathetic to that. And God, I pray that as they um, find their way in this world, as they, as they move along in this world, that you, Lord, as the great hound of heaven, would enter into their lives, into their generation, God. And may they even be the ones who might lead us to revival when it comes to the things of you. God, thank you for the millennials like Marsh and the other ones that are here in our church who uh, ha have been sabotaged by your grace and have responded to it with belief and trust and hope. God, may that be the future of this generation, I pray. And God, may we show nothing but honor and blessing to them as they follow you. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together. Amen.